0: We are continuing our class series on My Time Has Come. Jesus and the disciples are in an upper room uh, in Jerusalem. They've just finished sharing the Passover meal together. As they get up from the table, Jesus and the disciples prepare to go back over to the Mount of Olives where they've been camping out during the festival. And there's this really bizarre little passage stuck in here at Luke 22 just as they're getting ready to leave Jesus says hey guys you remember when I sent you out to minister on your own and I told you not to take anything at all with you and the disciples are like yeah we remember because it it happened twice he told them that twice and uh, Jesus says well did you lack for anything while you were out And they said, no, we really didn't. And Jesus says, well, this time, if you have money, bring it with you. If you have a bag of stuff, bring that. And if you don't have a sword, sell your outer cloak and get one. And that that last bit is in the imperative. And this whole statement is so, so weird. Last time Jesus told them, don't take any, you know, any bags with you. Don't take any money with you. Just take the shoes on your feet and the clothes on your back. And, you know, you'll be taken care of wherever you minister. This is, and he did that twice. This is the exact opposite. So weird. Um, but he says one more thing that might shed some light on it. He quotes Isaiah 53, 12, and says it is being fulfilled. The quote, what he quotes is he was numbered with the transgressors. And, um, and that word transgressor, it's usually translated transgressor, but it means rebels. So Jesus as we know, is definitely being singled out as a rebel. And I I think that's, you know, the context he's quoting this in. So that whole chapter in Isaiah is a really famous messianic prophecy. Isaiah 53 is a big deal about how the Messiah is going to be despised and rejected. We've read, we've read it before, chunks of it. We've, we've touched on this many times in other classes. Um, It says how the Messiah will take up our pain and suffering and how he will be misunderstood and how people are going to look at him and say, oh, look how God is punishing him when that's not what's happening at all. So the passage itself in Isaiah explains that it was us in our own sin doing the piercing and the crushing of the Messiah and that he bore it all because God sent him to bring us peace and to heal us. We turned on him, but he was faithful. He never said a word in his defense. Um, this is all in Isaiah prophesied like 700, 700 years before Christ. So and the beauty of this particular quote is that it comes from the very end of the chapter of the passage where God responds to all this by saying, Because he poured his life out, even to his death, his portion, his inheritance will be among the great. And that makes perfect sense as being fulfilled right now this very night. Jesus has poured his entire life out in service to the people and even all the way up to and including this very moment when his death is upon him. But it still doesn't explain, for me anyway, why the disciples would need to sell their cloaks to buy swords. None of them actually go do it um, because it says there, it turns out, the disciples already have a couple of swords with them. And Jesus tells them that will be enough, which is so, so weird. Because when it comes down to it in a few hours, and Peter actually does pull out one of the swords Jesus tells him to put it away. So I think, and this is just my interpretation here, I think that here as they're leaving the Last Supper, I think Jesus is still not sure whether God is going to intervene or not. He isn't sure whether the Spirit is going to lead him to fight, whether the Lord is going to actually, you know, go ahead and fulfill all these warrior prophecies or or what, you know, um, Jesus doesn't is if if the Lord is going to fulfill the warrior prophecies, he's not going to fulfill it with a with an earthly army. He's going to fulfill it with the heavenly host, right, with the a heavenly army. So, you know, and the people are involved, but but the might would come from the Lord. I think Jesus isn't really sure whether things there might be a plot twist here. And I think he wants to be prepared for anything that might happen. And we'll see in a minute that Jesus really, really doesn't want to have to go through with the torture and crucifixion. So we've now heard everything Jesus has had time to say in his short life. He's taught the disciples all he can. This is his last teaching. We've heard his last prayer nothing more is said. So this seems to be a good point to stop and just reflect on what it is that Jesus has taught them. When Jesus first called these disciples together, he taught them that their mission is to be the salt and light of the world, or else the whole world would be plunged into darkness. This basic training was in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus called them to his mission of fulfilling the law and the prophets. And to do this, he said we need to deal with our junk, you know, anger and lust and stuff like that. And once we've let go of that darkness in us, we need to be healed and filled. And then our cup overflows and we give and we pray and we fast with great joy and look to God for approval and love, not to men. And then we commit to following God and we look for his path and we choose God each and every day. Jesus hammered home God's role in knowing what we need and providing whatever we ask for. We don't need to worry about resources or whether we succeed or fail. How we do what we do is all that matters. God's got the rest. And above all, Jesus said, do to others as God does. Forgive as God does. Don't focus on your neighbor's shortcomings, but instead do unto others as you would have them do unto you. This fulfills the law and the prophets, all of scripture. This fulfills our mission. Jesus said to pray simply, just knowing that God is listening. He said, in your prayers, remember that God is your father. God is in heaven and God's very name is holy. And so pray for the success of your mission. Ask for whatever you need in your mission and rely on God to give it. God provides the resources for his work. And remember to treat others as you would want to be treated and ask God to forgive you the same way you forgive others. And lastly, humble yourself before God. In your prayers, remind yourself and God that you are human and that you need God to draw you close and keep you safe from evil. Jesus taught that God had anointed him and sent him and put his spirit upon him to bring good news to the poor, to heal the broken hearted to proclaim liberty to those held captive, to give sight to the blind, to open the prison doors for those who are oppressed, and to announce the welcome and favorable year of the Lord. This is the good news. When Jesus tells his disciples to spread the good news, this is what he's talking about. That previous stuff was how to prepare ourselves to do this. Jesus showed his disciples how to do all these things, literally healing people, but also dealing with spiritual blindness and religious oppression. And he told them that if they only had the tiniest bit of faith, faith as small as a mustard seed, they would do all the things Jesus did and more. Because Jesus is going to the Father, and just like the Father, he will fling open the storehouses of heaven for them, giving them whatever they need to do the Father's work. He reminds them that the Father is like the man who had two sons, one who worked hard in the fields from early in the day until late at night, and one who took his money and ran away and wasted it all. The father's love, Jesus said, is big enough to embrace both kinds of sons, the ones who work all day and are responsible, as well as the irresponsible ones who make all sorts of mistakes and then change their minds. Jesus said, be kind and compassionate to everyone, regardless of who they are or who what your own position or religious status might be. Being holy before God means walking humbly, loving justice, and always having mercy. Even now at the Last Supper, Jesus tells his disciples to stop fighting over who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He says, look, I will take the place of the lowliest person in the room. I Will wash your feet. And this is how I want you to treat each other. Love each other like this. I myself am the other person. Let your love for the other be your signature, your mark of identity. In serving and healing others, you will be giving honor to me and to the Father. You will be in me as I am in the Father. There you will be also. So even though I am going away, you know how to get where I am. And I am sending you another helper and advocate, comforter and guide, the Paracletan, the spirit of truth. So be at peace. Do not be anxious that I am going away. Stay plugged into me. Otherwise, you will have no life in you. You'll be like a branch that withers up and is good for nothing except to be burned for fuel or tossed in the trash heap. I am the life-giving vine. So stay with me so that you may be pruned like I am pruned and may produce fruit abundantly in the kingdom of heaven. I have loved you the same way the Father has loved me. So love each other the way I have loved you. I have told you all these things, because no matter what other people do to you, no matter how your life turns out, these things I have told you lead to joy, and I want your joy to be full to the brim. So go now and bear fruit, fruit that will remain, This is doing the work of the Father in the kingdom of heaven. Just tell people the good news of God's love and mercy and offer of healing and wholeness. Bear the fruit of love. Love each other the way I have loved you. And love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And love your neighbor as you love yourself. All of scripture hangs upon this central point. Over these few short years, Jesus has taught all these things to his disciples over and over and over again. It is a short message. There is more to say. He wants, you know, there's more for them to learn, but time has run out. Jesus and the disciples sing a hymn to end the Passover meal and they leave the upper room. Quietly, under cover of darkness, they head out to their camping spot on the Mount of Olives. It's in a garden named Gethsemane. All four Gospels, of course, have different versions of this story, and the version I'm telling you is a mashup from all of them, so you'll want to go read the individual versions for yourself. First, I want to show you where this is happening because it has a bearing on why things unfold the way they do. This is a topographical map of Jerusalem. If you notice, there are two main mountains. One is Mount Zion and the other is Mount Moriah where, uh, um, where the temple is. It is often a shock to Christians that the temple is not on Mount Zion. The word Zion refers to wherever the temple is, wherever God's dwelling is, but Mount Zion is not where the temple is. The temple's on Mount Moriah. There's a creek running at the bottom of Mount Moriah called the Kadron, and on the other side of the creek is the Mount of Olives. You can just barely see the beginnings of the upward slope on the bottom edge of this map. Jesus and the disciples don't go up the Mount of Olives any further than this. They stay down here by the creek within easy reach of Jerusalem and the temple guards. I do not know why. I think it's probably unusual for them to stay this close. Maybe it's late. I don't I don't understand why this night of all nights they they stay so close. You know, maybe they're just sleepy after that big meal. I don't know. It doesn't say. But apparently they've planned in advance to stay here because Judas Iscariot knows this is where to find them. He knows this is as close to Jerusalem as Jesus and the disciples are going to be, and that this is the perfect chance to catch Jesus unprotected. Jesus tells the disciples to sit down while he goes a little farther away to pray. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, the the three who are closest to him. James and John are brothers, if you remember, and they walk, um, with Jesus. And as Jesus walks, he becomes more and more distressed. He tells them, my soul is engulfed with sorrow to the point of death. You stay here and and keep watch. And then Jesus walks a little further alone, about a stone throw away. But the grief is just too heavy for him to bear. He falls to the ground and prays, asking, is it possible for this cup to pass me by? Dear Father, everything is possible for you. Please take this cup from me. But only if it is your will to do so, not mine. Meanwhile, Peter, James, and John have not only failed to keep watch, They've fallen asleep after that big meal. Jesus, going back to them, shakes them awake. Simon, Peter, are you sleeping? Can't you even keep watch for one hour? Wake up, keep watch and pray so you are not tempted or tried. (sighs) The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, Jesus goes away and prays that this cup, this coming ordeal, might pass him by. Please, Father, please let there be a plot twist. He's asking his father if there is any way at all he can avoid torture and crucifixion at the hands of the religious leaders and the Romans. Again, he goes back to Peter, James, and John, only to find them asleep again. When he shakes them awake, they're speechless. They have no explanation to give him. A third time, Jesus goes to pray. And Luke says an angel appears to him to strengthen him as he struggles mightily with himself. Jesus is in agony with sweat pouring down his face with large drops falling to the ground like drops of blood. And finally, exhausted, exhausted. Jesus returns a third time to Peter, James, and John and rouses them saying, are you still dozing? Enough of this. Look, the son of man is handed over to sinners. Get up, let's go. Look, the one betraying me is almost here. And sure enough, The disciples look up, and here comes a contingent of soldiers with swords and clubs with Judas Iscariot in the lead. Can you imagine the shock and dismay the disciples feel? They had no idea Judas had gone to betray Jesus' location to the religious leaders. These are armed soldiers from the chief priests and officers from the Pharisees, and they are coming for Jesus. Judas, in a prearranged signal, immediately goes and kisses Jesus in greeting to identify him. Jesus says, Judas, you betray me with a kiss? And then Jesus says to the soldiers, am I a bandit that you need to come after me with swords and clubs? I was right there in the temple every day teaching. Why didn't you take me then? And of course, we all know it's because they were afraid the people would riot. They've been searching for months now for a way to arrest Jesus in secret. The soldiers grab Jesus to arrest him, and all hell breaks loose. Peter has one of those two swords the disciples brought with them, and he attacks one of the high priest's men, cutting off his ear. Jesus cries, "Stop it! Stop that! Put your sword away, Peter." Don't you know I could call upon 12 legions of angels to defend me? But how then would I drink the cup the Father has given me? And with that, Jesus restores the man's ear. Realizing that Jesus intends to give himself up, the disciples run for their lives. Mark says that one of the young disciples was only wearing a linen garment. He didn't even have time to pick up his outer cloak. And when the soldiers grabbed him, he slipped out of his linen garment and ran away naked. This is only in Mark's gospel. And that's why we suspect that this young disciple is Mark himself. (laughs) And so it is that the armed men sent by the high priests and the Pharisees arrest Jesus, and take him into Jerusalem under cover of darkness. First, they take him to the house of Annas, the Sadducee, who had been high priest for years and is clearly the real power in the Sanhedrin. If you look at the high priests who followed him like, like, five out of seven of them that come after him are his sons or his son-in-law. So this guy is like the pa- the patriarch. He's not he's not high priest anymore, but he might as well be. Um so they take him Jesus to him first. And he um uh questions Jesus, tries to find out about his disciples, tries to get Jesus to say something self-incriminating about the things he teaches. But Jesus says Why are you asking this now? I've taught openly in the temple and the synagogues. Ask the people who were there. They'll tell you what I said. Immediately, one of the guards slaps Jesus and says, Is this how you answer the high priest? And Jesus says, "Ah, If I said something wrong, then point it out. But if I spoke rightly, why did you hit me? Honest, then sends Jesus bound to his son-in-law, Caiaphas, another Sadducee, who is currently serving as the official high priest. And Caiaphas, of course, calls together all the religious leaders to figure out what to do now. We're somewhere in the middle of the night, probably in the wee hours of Thursday morning. Remember that for the Jews, Thursday began at sundown on what we Westerners would call Wednesday and and this particular Wednesday was Passover and it will continue until sundown on Thursday. Can you imagine the stir as messengers from the high priest Caiaphas pound on the doors of the members of the Sanhedrin in the middle of the night to tell them to come quickly because Jesus has been arrested These men are high-ranking Pharisees, elders, scribes, lawyers. These are the religious elite. When they finally assemble, Jesus is brought before them and put on trial. It's a religious trial held in the dark of night. The leaders are trying to find evidence sufficient to put Jesus to death. Problem is... No two people's testimony agrees, and Jesus remains silent throughout it all. The whole thing takes hours. Meanwhile, after fleeing the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter has kept watch outside to see what will happen to Jesus. He's fo- He followed the soldiers to Annas' house and then trailed at a distance when they took Jesus to Caiaphas and, and the gathering of the Sanhedrin. It's cold outside, and there's a fire burning in the courtyard outside of Caiaphas's house. Caiaphas's servants are up, of course, to tend to the needs of the Sanhedrin, and about this time of day is when servants would normally begin their work. And surely some servants of the rest of the Sanhedrin are are also there, having accompanied their masters. So Peter, you know, tries to blend in with the crowd who's warming themselves by the fire suddenly one of the servant girls recognizes Peter. She says, hey, you're with Jesus the Nazarene too. Alarmed, Peter says, oh no, 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 I'm not. And he moves away outside the gate of the house where there are other people gathering. But another servant girl recognizes him and says, hey, he's one of that man's disciples. And Peter says, no, no, I'm not. And then someone else says, you certainly must be with him you speak with a Galilean accent and Peter says hey man I don't know what you're talking about and immediately a rooster crows the sun is rising and Peter runs away and weeps bitterly for he remembers that Jesus told him he would deny him three times before the cock crowed Meanwhile, inside Caiaphas' house, the Sanhedrin is still trying to find credible witnesses who can accuse Jesus of something the Romans would find punishable by death. One guy says, Well, I heard him say he will destroy the temple by human hands and then rebuild it in three days supernaturally. Yeah, that's not going to impress the Romans. <laughs> and even the people who had also heard Jesus say he would rebuild the temple in three days, can't agree on exactly what he said. And Jesus is silent through it all. He does not dispute anything any of these men say about him. Caiaphas, the high priest, loses patience. He says, why aren't you answering the charges against you? Jesus says nothing. Caiaphas finally asked Jesus, point blank, are you the Messiah, the Son of God? In Luke's version, Jesus says, if I tell you, you won't believe me. In Matthew's version, Jesus says, well, that's what you say. But in Mark's version, the earlier version, Jesus says, I am. And you will all see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Notice that Jesus says, I am, the name God gave himself. Of course, in Greek, it's nothing more than the normal phrase, I am. It's not the Tetragrammaton in Hebrew, you know, that it would be in Hebrew. But either way you want to take it, this answer is fraught with meaning. Jesus stands as Messiah and King before the religious leaders of the nation and tells them point blank that they have refused to see or hear God. Jesus has just signed his own death warrant. Caiaphas tears his robes in the ultimate hypocritical act of self piety and cries, we need no more witnesses, blasphemy, blasphemy, what say you, Sanhedrin? And they condemned Jesus to death, death for daring to call himself the Son of God, and now surely death at the hands of the Romans for claiming finally to be the Messiah. He finally said the words, and the Romans know that the Messiah is the prophesied king of the Jews. They've been on the watch out for the Messiah for a while yet. The vote to condemn Jesus to death is unanimous, according to Mark. But I wonder if it's a vote by acclamation, and I wonder if some of the men of the Sanhedrin remain silent. The mood of the group definitely turns ugly after Caiaphas tears his robes. Some of the men spit on Jesus. They blindfold him and hit him and mock him saying, prophesy now, why don't you tell us who it is that struck you? Then the temple guards, the guards under the command of the religious leaders, take Jesus away and beat him. The stakes are so high here. This is literally a life and death situation that Jesus and Peter are in, but they react very differently. So let's talk about that a little in our breakout groups. All right, I think everybody's back except Shirley had to Shirley had to go because her daughter was coming. Um, but everybody else is back. Hi, everyone. Um, wow! So- <laughs> talk to me.
1: Okay, Mary, I'm calling on you. (laughs) Um, I I want want to just
0: start um, just by saying what the question was, because some people who listen to the videos don't, you know, have access to the question. So um, I just want to say that all of the questions were around comparing how Jesus responded to his impending torture and death. And how Peter responded to the possibility of torture and death like that. And then the third question was, so what was the difference? What made the difference? And how do we prepare ourselves like Jesus did?
2: Okay, you're on, Mary. Well, I, I, I so many words. <laughs> I'm highly verbal, high context. Um but I've heard this story so many times at my age. You know it's, and where I chose to go with it today when I listened, and you did it beautifully, Gail, once again, thank you for the gift you bring. And I chose to make it an internal opportunity as opposed to external. And I thought about my own spiritual life and development. And that to get to the place where Jesus was as he was quiet and still and till he was directly asked, I think about my own internal journey as I've grown in my faith, that there have been many voices that have challenged me internally that said, because I had so much dogma and so much rigidity and so much, you know, absolutes. And this to me is another example of we are everyone in that story. It's not either or, it's both and. And the journey is getting to the place where I can answer that question internally. Um, who do you say that I am? You know. Um, we have three versions, you know, four versions, and but who do you say that I am, and how do I respond to that? Who is the God in me? So I made it a very internal uh, opportunity for uh, taking a look at where I am in my own faith journey, and with the goal of not judging, not being angry, not all that stuff which comes with being human as we make this journey to come to a place of peace, to honor the Christ in us, and honor the Christ in everyone else, no matter what the dialogue, no matter what the posture. Um
3: Mary, I feel like that was
2: a very enlightened answer,
3: and you kind of hit the whole scope. I mean, to think about it, that we are this, and internally instead of externally, that's
4: that's
5: amazing. Mm-hmm. Oh, and also, we're so quick as some of us at times um, in our faith to be, to force it or to share it with others. But I I definitely agree with Mary of Jesus' motto, even the Bible verse that says, be ready to give the reason for the hope. And or Peter, or whatever. Whatever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep. And then, but everybody stops there, and then the rest of the sentence is when asked. So you know, like Jesus modeled that. Like we we get to share our faith, not forced, not in this spirit of almost pompous of I know better and you don't. But it's in the back to the theme of this Bible study in humility and when asked, because when asked is when someone is ready to hear the answer before that mm-hmm. he mm-hmm. Showed it. he remained silent when the people weren't ready to hear that
6: yeah, well, he
5: that was an interesting the
0: negativity thing. Pardon he
1: Julia, can you repeat that he wasn't participating in all the negativity that was going on he waited until somebody asked him the question of truth and he responded with truth but he didn't go down in the ditch with what all else was happening. He mm-hmm. just remained a, above it and waited. And then when the truth was asked of him, he responded. Yeah. I'm sorry, Marlene.
6: No, that was basically what we talked about in our group mm-hmm. was, uh, you know, he stood there quietly while all of these people were coming in and telling, you know, untruths or partial truths or, you know, all of this this pageantry was going on. Um, and there was nothing to say that anyone would listen to until Caiaphas directly looked him in the eye and said, are you the Messiah? Ask the right question. Ask the right question in the right moment. And that was his moment to finally say yes. Do you think it had (laughs) anything to do with the fact that it was Caiaphas asking the highest. Yes. I think so, yes. I think,
3: because he's the guy who makes the decision. Everybody else is just toying with him.
0: He's yeah. speaking directly to the guy who has set himself
6: up as God's authority on earth, right? Yep. Yeah. And also Caiaphas would be the one who would have the authority to turn him over to the Romans. But he had to right. have That's a right. that the Romans would find enough of a threat to take action. Mm-hmm. And all this business about tearing down the temple. Yeah. Like Gail said, the Romans didn't care. They would be more than happy for the temple to be torn down.
1: Uh, <laughs> and, the, and, right. they,
0: and they knew it wasn't going to get built in three years. They've been working on it for 46 years already. And
6: it still wasn't finished. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. But somebody who says, yes, I am the expected warrior king of Israel. That would get the Romans' attention.
2: Mm-hmm. For sure. Well, and I like some poetic license. That Caiaphas was a place in in a place in his own journey. You know, he, he was hearing everything being said, and and he knew he had power. And it's like our own internal journey. Am I ready to ask the question? Who is the God in me? Who is the Jesus in me? And I, am I willing to then respond in a way that mirrors that person that I love and that I hold in me? And You know, and I wonder about that with Caiaphas. We don't know the rest of the story. We, I mean, we do, but his personal story, you know, what, how was he, did he ask that question from a place of power? Or did he have his own journey and his own doubts and his own questions and is trying to figure out this Jesus? You know, I mean, I... We only get a little bit of it, don't we, huh? <laughs> There's a wonderful quote that says, "Your lands is not the landscape. There's lots of yeah. other stuff going on you know <laughs> That's yeah,
7: for, for it's worth, i have I have my own feeling about that question um I think Caiaphas must have been coming from a place of power. Why else would he ask Jesus that question, and then, as soon as jesus has answered yes." Caiaphas explodes, tears his robe, uh, and basically uh, sentences Jesus to death. If I mean, what what could he? I don't know what he would have expected. Uh,
5: I kind of like. Oh, sorry. I'm go ahead. ahead. No, no, I'd rather hear from you. Well, kind of like Peter. You know, Peter denied Jesus three times, but we knew where mm-hmm. Peter's heart was. So could Caiaphas, however you say his name, could he have been in this internal? dialogue of like i want to believe but then the pressure of his power and his leadership had to outweigh what potentially mary's saying his personal journey because we see that even his disciples do the contrary of what they believe in
6: love yeah although i Mm -hmm. think we have to go back to the fact that the high priest at that time was allied with the romans the mm-hmm. high priest was not looking for a warrior king. That would be a threat to his position of power and privilege, and so he would be siding with the Romans. now well, he's he- siding.
0: He's looking for a warrior king who will put Israel on top. You know, and I don't know that. And they give lip service to that, but when the actual Messiah shows up in power. They they're not ready to give up.
6: They I think they're real. They realize that they have to give up their power at that point. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. and also looking at Jesus and this ragtag group of you know backwoods uneducated men, um, he's like, yeah, no, this isn't the guy.
4: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, and I, I don't wonder... think. Go ahead, Renee. I don't think that that Kivis or. The other groups, people in charge, really, Jesus didn't come the way they thought he would come. So he can't be Jesus. He's
0: just another wacko. Yeah. And there had been several wackos in this time. It was like, if you look at the history of the Jewish nation, you know, they lost their independence 100 years earlier. And then right at the time Jesus was born... And during Jesus' lifetime and then for another hundred years thereafter, really, um, there was all of a sudden this eruption of people who called themselves messiahs, Mm -hmm. right? There was like three of them, uh, three or four of them when Jesus was born.
7: Somebody asked a really interesting question a minute ago uh, that are... Raised in my mind a interesting question, what would Caiaphas really have wanted? Would he have actually wanted a warrior king messiah to uh, to uh, overthrow the Roman rule and um, uh, re um, bring uh Israel back to liberty or would that sort of a warrior king messiah have been a threat to the Romans and therefore a threat to Caiaphas's position? Um, kind of an interesting question. And I think there's tension in Caiaphas over that as Mary comes mm-hmm. out, you
0: know, and that makes me wonder, I know what, you know, We're it's pretty clear as Woody points out what, how Caiaphas thought in that moment. Caiaphas was like, you know, no, here's, you know, tear my robes big blasphemy all the whole thing but as mary points out we don't know what happens afterwards in his heart and i remember that old story um it's an old story i'm sure you've heard it but of an easter parade and some children have decorated a cross and for a float in the parade and they've put flowers and all kinds of wonderful things on it and, and they're dragging their little Um, float in this parade and the minister is giving them grief because they've put flowers and good things on the cross and the cross is, you know, a symbol of death. And, and the, one of the children says to him, but isn't it supposed to be that everything the cross touches is transformed? You know, Uh and, and I, I, I think that comes to mind in this situation. I think I'm expressing a little of what Mary is expressing there that, that even though Caiaphas and Peter react horribly in this moment, is this moment, did this moment then become pivotal in a later transformation? In mm-hmm. you know?
4: I also think part of Peter's fault or problem, not fault, but problem is his whole world. It just got turned upside down. Oh, yeah. Because well, Jesus just mentioned everybody needs a sword. So we're finally going to fight the Romans. I, That's yeah. got to be what was in. I mean, he was jazzed. We're going to fight the Romans. We're finally going to get the war. You know, he's finally going to do what he we thought he was going to do. And then all of a sudden, nope. And Peter's got to have his whole brain scrambled. Just a little bit, because <laughs> it's, well, it's you, know, yeah. you know I don't think he really you know understood until later that everything Jesus said was pointing to this. He was still kind of jazzed it was pointed to the old stuff. Yeah,
0: he he was you no know, none of these disciples were wanting to believe that Jesus was really going to be tortured and die. That right, they, you know, and then be resurrected three days later. I mean, none of this, (laughs) computed.
4: No, he's gonna. Okay, finally, he's going to kick butt and you know, take do what he needs to do and save (laughs) us all. And then all of a sudden, they walk into this garden. Peter cuts some guy's ear off, and Jesus says, "No, don't do that," and fixes it. It's like, what the heck is going on? I think that even though we know the story, we know the
3: outcome, we believe in Jesus, I think it is too hard to fathom, uh, to truly understand, how does somebody die to save us? I mean, mm-hmm. I, I don't think that was the projection of a Messiah saving everything.
0: But I, I also... Oh, can we pause it.
3: there, Joe, Because
0: that's important. Because the Messiah was to save the nation to make them, to put them back where they were supposed to be as a blessing to the world. All Mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. Never as individual savior, you know, kind of thing. It was to usher in a period of healing and peace and wonderment. I
3: think that if we look at Caliphus and, who's the high priest. I mean, he's the the head honcho who's supposed to be the biggest believer and he's achieved the highest. And we have Peter, as Anne mentioned, who the the cornerstone of church is supposed to be built on. Right. But in that moment of truth, in that final moment of truth, even believers are still human. Mm -hmm. And make the wrong choice I mean we talked about flight and fright and I think that's kind of, what are to prepare
0: us for what does your moment really look like yeah and and okay. and and to know that that is in us because yeah. we are human. How do we prepare ourselves because it seems like Peter was not prepared. Like Jesus was prepared. What was the yeah. difference in their preparation? <laughs> Jesus was fully human. Now we're taking Jesus as fully human right now.
6: Mm-hmm. We talked about that in our group and with question number two, which was why did Peter answer as he did? What is the difference in how Jesus is approaching his torture and death and how Peter is? And you know, we've had conversations all the way through about how it seems like Jesus was getting revelations ongoing as to how the story was going to end. He didn't, wasn't born knowing everything. It does not appear. And there was kind of a hint of that in in the last supper with the whole sword thing. Yes, but there still was this huge struggle in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was really saying, you know, I really don't want to do this. Like, do I really have to go through with this? Please, God, don't make me do this. But, you know, if it's the way it has to go, okay, I'll submit. And Jesus had come to that point where, like others have said, it was like, okay, this is going to play out. I know how it's going to end now. I'm not going to waste my energy trying to argue, you know, against lies. Um, Save your energy. Answer the question. That's going to continue the process and is going to end the way this is supposed to end. Where even then, I mean, even though he had told the disciples all this and he said, I've told you everything and I have prepared you and this is what's going to happen. They still didn't get the immediacy mm-hmm. of the moment they fell asleep. And so, you know, you can imagine being awakened in the middle of the night from a sound sleep after this big meal and you're all groggy and all of a sudden it's chaos around you with clubs and swords and, and Judas, what's Judas doing here? Why is Judas doing this? And, you know, the, the the adrenaline runs, the fight or flight kicks in. and And, you know, I think we all would have reacted that way or very few people would not have they still were not prepared in any way for what was happening right before their eyes. But why?
3: I think that why weren't it. they repaired? I think they couldn't understand it,
0: but Jesus told them plainly. But they, still, they knew what they, they wanted were wanted
6: to hear and what they wanted to believe. You know, even when Peter said, you're the Messiah, the son of God, how could the Messiah be hauled off? in chains, and be crucified.
7: There are a lot of things that I know <laughs> in my head, I may have been told, and I have them in my head, but they haven't made it down to my heart or my gut. Or my
5: life or my experience. experience. Mm-hmm. or maturity, right? I mean, mm-hmm. we all kind of go through developmental stages and mm-hmm. our physical bodies, I, I think spiritually, we do the same thing. And so... That's a great
0: point because it speaks to kind of being a child um, in where we are and needing to mature. And that perhaps is a lens through which we can view Peter and Jesus. Um, But, and if that is the case, what element of maturity did Jesus have that Peter did not?
7: At this point, well, yeah, the ultimate trust in God.
0: That
7: sounds right to me, right? Mm
0: -hmm. Yep.
4: That's what I think. Even
3: even though we think we believe until the moment comes. When I read this before class, it reminded me of the Columbine shooting because one of the girls in the library was directly asked, um, I don't remember if it was, Do you believe in God or are you a Christian? And she said yes and was shot. And I mean, I've I've thought about that. I mean, not only because I'm a teacher and I hate this stuff, but would I have sat there and gone, "Wait, I'm a mom. My kids need a mother. I, you know, I can't." <sighs> I mean, we think we know mm-hmm. until the moment we're tested.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. Well, mm-hmm.
4: and Jesus also had a little bit of a benefit that. He had a different relationship with God than most people because he knew in himself because I mean, if you I was always taught that God that Jesus was fully human and fully God at the time. so he knew in himself that he could trust God instinctively maybe, more so than an average human that's just learning about it. Because they don't have that that connection that Jesus had with God. yeah. So he was much more mature because he had that connection his whole life. But I where think, mm-hmm. the others, they had a connection with Jesus. But if Jesus can die, then he's just a guy.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And that is why Jesus always pointed to god that is why jesus said you're not connecting to me you're connecting to god i am connecting you to god all the good things are coming from god don't call me good god is the one who is good god is the one who is giving everything i'm doing are the things god is doing i'm just copying god and i and i think you're You've hit it on the, on the head, Renee, that the disciples were so focused on being connected to Jesus that they didn't understand that it was the connection to God that was important. And that I'm kind of thinking is the important part for us, that it's not that Jesus had some magical, mystical, better way of connecting It's that he was fully human to show us that we can have that connection to God, the same connection he had. I don't think his disciples understood that at the
1: time. I don't think I did. (laughs) That was a great point. Yeah, but it's just like earlier
3: when you said, Gail, you said, but they were told this.
6: Yeah. That I remember Woody said in our group that they didn't really have that courage until the Holy Spirit came down. And I think maybe that was the moment when they really, I mean, they had seen Jesus rise from the dead. He had walked with them after they died. He taught them some more. They mm-hmm. saw him go up to heaven, but it was when the Holy Spirit came down on them that suddenly they had the courage to go out in public and speak. And from then on, there are all these records of them speaking truth to power and Mm -hmm. preaching and teaching and traveling and all the things and almost all of them being martyred. Um, And it was that connection to God. But that would be wasted.
0: That would be a complete waste. If there was not something else for all the rest of us, because uh, if, if that Holy spirit what did clearly later, and obviously we're telling, telling things that we haven't got to yet, but if that Holy spirit did clearly later, give them the ability to do the signs and wonders that, needed to accompany the spreading of the good news, just as it did for Jesus, right? That was given to the apostles so they could continue doing what Jesus did. But unless they are pointing people to directly to God and not to those gifts, not to the signs and wonders... Jesus used to say, you're just following me around because you want bread. (laughs) You know, know, so if we can't take it out of that context and say, once we understand that the point is to connect us to God and to fully and completely trust God that we are alive now forever. That our bodily lives can be laid down in service to God, no sweat.
3: Well, kind kind of like Erica said, too, the stages of development, I think equally there's stages of grief and stages of acceptance. And I think due to Jesus, back to your point of Jesus, connection, connection to God, he had his bargaining. He bargained in the garden. Right, Peter's still bargaining. Peter's there, going, "How do we get out of this?" Mm -hmm. And Jesus had moved through the, you know, I'm not trying to put psychology into back then, but like, you know, he had Jesus. People are people. Yeah, Mm -hmm. had moved through the bargaining stage, and it seems like by the time he was in front of Caiaphas, had settled in, had settled in so deeply that he didn't have to answer the other questions anymore. Mm -hmm. He wasn't fighting it anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, he kind of knew what was happening. He It seems like understood better pieces of God's plan. Mm -hmm. He
1: accepted
5: it and accepted it. And so there's a.
1: And Peter wasn't there
5: yet, right? Mm -hmm. Well, he didn't need to be there because he had Jesus. And so sometimes we don't need to um, act or have courage or rely on, on our faith because we have those around us that are comforting us and that we trust and that support us, but you remove those people around and you better believe it, whether it's a tragedy, whether it is just unfortunate circumstances, whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There comes a point where we also have to own our faith, rely on our belief in God and our past experience, what they're doing to us and what they're teaching us and what they're, putting in our spirit to do so it sometimes is it's until we're uncomfortable that we don't move that raises about an interesting, that in our group
1: uh,
7: that raises an interesting question um do we need to be careful about um putting our faith and trust in jesus rather than god i mean kind of like the kind of like the disciples did Well, it's certainly
0: if we're putting our faith in a picture of Jesus, a conception of Jesus, um, that is, uh, you know, all these miraculous things he did and it's bundled up with that, then we're not actually focusing on God. But Jesus did say he and God are one. He also said we can be there, too. We are one with Jesus and God together, all of us.
7: But it's yes. difficult It's difficult sometimes to sort of make that separation mm-hmm. um, and, and to what am I trying to say to to make our faith in Jesus focus actually on what Jesus was pointing to, uh, which, which is, is God, God. Not, not the physical person of Jesus. right.
0: Right, and I think that's where we get all tangled up in, well, people have to say the certain creeds and you have to believe the certain things and and, and then we go off and left field. We know the fruit of that, right? But God, I don't, I, I think if we boiled all of this, everything we've done down, it would have to be that the root is that we belong to God. Our life comes from God. Our life goes to God and our life is lived in God. And if that, if that is how we view it, holding it with an open hand is a no brainer.
4: Well, and I also, I don't know. In just my brain. I used used to before I learned better that think that you know heaven was like a different plane of existence mm-hmm. instead of involved in this existence. Mm-hmm. It was a place to go. You you like I don't know. Mm-hmm. I always I knew it was another planet, but it also it made It me- might as well have
0: been, right?
4: Well and and being the sci-fi fantasy person I am, I was thinking, okay, so it's just another plane of existence. Well, now you, when you really think about it and know that God is everywhere on this earth, I mean, he's on the earth. He's not in a different place. He's here. That makes so much more difference yes. because that makes God attainable. It makes it easy to communicate with God because yes. he's here. If, it's you, if so, you realize it's,
1: that it's, yeah.
4: the pulse in your heart is the
0: pulse of the universe and that God is in every pulse of every part of life in around us, death. Fear of what people can do to you, you know, how they can ruin your career. It just becomes not important. And we can look at a thing like a leaf and think on it and still ourselves, like Erica was saying, to where we can feel the pulse of God and be connected.
1: Wow, well, Gail, that imagery of a leaf and a tree like, tree, God is the tree, and we are the leaves. And sometimes the leaf might fall, but it's still a leaf connected to God, even if it separates from the tree. And it, if it
0: dies, it falls, and it becomes nourishment that is then drawn right back up in that tree. Yeah. You know, we are part of God. We are part of Jesus. Jesus said so. And I I want to, um, we're at the end of our time. I want to leave you with one last question, not to discuss, but one to ponder. And that is, I wonder what would have changed if Peter had said, yes, I know him. I love you, and I will
3: see you all next week. Thank you. Gail, before we go, I just want to tell you, being a teacher, I used to do the PowerPoints. I know how much work and time is put in little charts with the dropping and the animating and the arrows. And you just, you spend a lot of time on our behalf for that. And thank you. And I want to thank the group. We're such a varied group. And I just think um, I learned so much in this group, and y'all are so profound. I feel very blessed to have both those gifts. <laughs>
0: Me too. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Thank. Thank you, Joe.
1: Love yeah. you. <laughs> God. <All right. laughs>